you know, I have decided as I move towards 40, I'll be 40 in about 18 months, that after a lifetime of experiences, um, that if I had never heard of Jesus and I never had a Bible to kind of tell me who God was or what God represented, that there are three moments in my life that always, that always make me aware of God. There are three moments in my life where I always feel that there's got to be something more. One of them is when I'm standing on a beach, um, and maybe you're similar. When I'm at a beach and I'm looking at the ocean, um, not the beauty of it, but the size of it and the sound of it and just the never-ending horizon of it. When I stand on the beach and I look at the ocean, it's like, man, there's got to be something way bigger than me in our world. Another thing is the mountains. When I'm, when I'm in the mountains, when I'm up in Breckenridge, when I'm hitting Denver in the foothills and I'm getting ready to head up, the magnitude of the mountains and the majesty of the snow-capped mountains on a sunny day just kind of whispers into my soul that there's, that there's got to be something way more powerful than me in our universe. And then the third would be the stars. Every time I look up at night on a clear night, um, you know, I, I love the stars. I'm into learning the constellations. Um, I love seeing how they're in the same place at the same time um, every year. I, I'm a stargazer, and when I look up, um, I realize, man, there has to be something more than me um, here in this universe. And a few weeks ago, Danielle and I were down in Branson, um, and we were at the top of the rock. Maybe you've been there. It's a new kind of restaurant complex, newer that's kind of connected to um, Big Cedar Lodge there. And we were out on um, the balcony and we were having dinner at this restaurant there. And we were looking at the stars. It was a beautiful night. Stars were out. It was wonderful. There's a fire pit nearby. We were having dinner. And there's a little church kind of down the hill where they do weddings and conferences and stuff. Um, And after dinner, Danielle and I both agreed, hey, let's go down and, and look at the little church and just go inside and see what's going on there. And we had to go three levels down in the restaurant. From the restaurant through the bar, down into the wine cellar, and then out into a courtyard. And as the door closed behind us, as we exited the wine cellar, all the light was kind of shut off, and we found ourselves in a very kind of narrow corridor. The the walls were probably 20 feet on either side, and it was pitch black. And as we looked up, Daniel said, wow, look how many stars you can see from here. And I looked up, and I made a comment that wasn't spiritual in nature, I just said as we, as we looked up, I said, man, sometimes you have to be in a really dark place to see things the way that God has created them. And as I said that, we were kind of walking, and I felt like the Lord spoke to me. He doesn't always speak to me when I'm on a beach or when I'm in the mountains. Um, every now and then, I feel like when I'm on beach, God said, just stay here. Just don't ever go home. But, I, you know, I, I'm not sure whether that's God or me. But I felt like God spoke to me and said, listen to what you just said. So I kind of repeated it in my head. Sometimes you have to get to a really dark place to see things the way that God really wants you to see them. And God's kind of whispered into my spirit, man, how true is that of life? Let me ask you a couple questions this morning. Are you in a dark place in any area of your life right now that you're struggling to kind of feel your way through? Maybe the answer is to look up and see what God has for you. Do you know anyone who's in a dark place right now? You're, you're watching their life. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a coworker. But you're watching someone descend further into darkness, and you're trying to figure out, man, how, how can I help them? I see where this is headed, and it's not good. What can I do to step in and try to help them? Could the answer maybe be in that dark place to look up and see what God has designed for us? Or have you ever had a desire...
to learn how to prepare your life for a dark season so that you can find your way out of it. If the answer to any of those questions is yes, you're in a dark place or you've got a dark place you're working on, you know someone in a dark place or you want to be able to escape on one day, then you're in the right place because the next five weeks we're going to look up. The next five weeks we're going to find our way through a dark place by looking up and seeing life the way God has designed life to be lived. And we're going to do it through the book of Nehemiah. So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to the book of Nehemiah. If you have your bulletin, you can pull your notes out of it. Uh, If you have an online Bible, fire that up. If you've downloaded our Journey Church app, you can fire that up. That has all of our scripture and all of our notes in it. So you can follow along and at the end you can push a button and email it to yourself so you can go back and look at it later if you want. But the next five weeks we're going to study the book of Nehemiah to answer this question. And I know I've just given you a bunch of tasks to do. You're turning in your Bible, you're getting your notes, you're getting your pen, you're firing up your app. But, but let me back into your world enough to ask this question. Here's a question we're looking at in the next five weeks. When life hasn't met your expectations, do you change your expectations or do you change your life? Just think about that for a minute. When the life you dreamed of and desired doesn't meet your expectations, when the life you thought God had for you doesn't meet your expectations, do you change your expectations to meet your life or do you change your life to recapture the dream? The next five weeks we're in this series called Fixer Upper. And the, the story of this series is the story of the book of Nehemiah and trying to figure out how to rebuild the dream for our life when it appears to have fallen apart. And here's the cool thing about the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah isn't just a Bible story. It's actually a historical narrative. There's a lot of people like, oh, that's just a good Bible story. No, no, no. This is more than a Bible story. I believe all of the Bible is true, but every now and then we get pockets of history that really lend credibility to the Bible that are awesome. Who is Nehemiah? As we jump into this historical narrative, Nehemiah was a Jewish exile who lived in Persia. Nehemiah's probably great-grandfather, maybe great-great-grandfather were Israeli. They lived in Israel. The country of Israel was conquered by a nation called Babylon. They either killed everyone or they kidnapped them and and brought them home kind of as prisoners of war. And a lot of the people of Israel just stayed there. Nehemiah's family was one of those. Babylon was later conquered by Persia. um, And now the kingdom of Persia was ruling and reigning. And Nehemiah was a Jewish exile who was living in Persia, which is modern-day Iran, if you're just trying to place it in your head. Um, His family had been exiled 150 years earlier, so he had known nothing but the Middle East and Babylon, which is in Iraq, or Persia, which is Iran, that area of the world. And he had an important job in Persia. Even though he was in exile, his job is that he was the cupbearer to the king of Persia. Now, the cupbearer was kind of like the personal assistant to the king. So the cupbearer held a very important position because they were close to the king. They knew the king. They helped the king with everything, but they were also expendable, which explains why a Jewish exile was the cupbearer because one of the main roles of the cupbearer was to taste all the food and wine before it got to the king because one of the ways they try to kill kings in the ancient Near East was to poison him. So he, he had a really important job, but he was also expendable. They wanted the poison to hit him before it hit the king. All of us with children have been a cupbearer at some point in time when we've wanted one of our kids' french fries or when we've wanted the first bite of the ice cream cone or when we've wanted the first drink of something, when we've wanted the first piece of Halloween candy. You know, we just need to make sure it's not poison before we give it to you. That's what Nehemiah did. That was his job, to steal candy from kids. No, for the king, it was to protect him. And this book, this story, Nehemiah, is the story of his return to Israel to help rebuild it. 
And here's what's really, really cool about this. In the late 1800s, there were 200 pieces of papyrus found in northern Africa called the Elephantine Papyrus. It had been buried for more than um, 2,400 years. And when they found these scrolls, they were not part of the Bible. They were just historical archives from a group of Jewish historians that were living in northern Africa who had been exiled. And in these papyrus, they have found the names of most of the people in the book of Nehemiah. They have found the situations going on that happened in the book of Nehemiah. They, they record the leadership transitions that happened in the book of Nehemiah and who was king at the time in Persian, who was over the area of Samaria. So we've got history from the very time it was happening that lends credibility to everything in the Bible because it's like, yeah, these are real people because somebody wrote it down, they left the scrolls behind in a cave and they found them. So there's incredible history to validate the book of Nehemiah, but even more incredible than the history is the spiritual inspiration in this book of Nehemiah for how to rebuild a broken area of your life. You see, Nehemiah is a story about one of the darkest moments in Israel's history and one man's resolve to rebuild. And maybe you're in here today and you're in a dark spot in your life. My hope for you the next five weeks, listen to me, everyone who comes is, is going to hear the story of Nehemiah. It's a great story. Many who are here are actually going to listen. You might learn something which will be cool. Some of us are even going to think about it. Like something will happen, it will trigger your mind, and you'll think about Nehemiah sometime this week or this month just out where you are. But if even just one person chooses to take the inspiration and they choose to rebuild a broken area of their life, then we have been successful as a church in this series. All are going to hear, many will listen, some will think, but maybe you can choose to rebuild and have your life forever changed in the next five weeks through the story of Nehemiah. And here it is, Nehemiah chapter one. We're going to read the whole first chapter before you gasp. It's only 11 verses. Like, <gasps> it's, only, it's not going to go fast. And then we'll read the first five verses of chapter two. And here's the story. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, and they're in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We've acted really wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave to your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even your exiled people at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand, Lord. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who give, who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was the cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. I'd not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. 
Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it that you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Man, we're going to learn so much together the next five weeks as we study the book of Nehemiah. But today's message has a couple things. It has two powerful truths. I mean, two really powerful spiritual truths. And it has three simple action steps. It has two truths that I believe are so powerful that I I pray they become a part of your spiritual DNA. I pray they become a part of your spiritual vernacular. I pray that these phrases that I say this morning will get stuck in your head. They'll rattle around in your head and you might hear them saying them to yourself or even repeating them to others. That's how powerful I believe these truths are. And the action steps are so simple that anyone in the room, including the teenagers and maybe some of the younger kids who are with us, can go apply these action steps to their life today. Two powerful truths, three pretty simple action steps as we begin this Fixer Upper series. What's the first truth? Number one, don't settle for broken. Don't settle for broken. I hope that's a phrase that gets stuck in your mind and you think about it for the rest of your life. Don't settle for broken. Look at the first three verses of Nehemiah. They're pretty sad says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year while I was in the citadel of Susa. I want you to underline those words, citadel of Susa, if you have your Bible with your highlight them or underline them or write them down. For those of you who are kind of Bible nerds like me, I'm going to teach you something about the citadel of Susa that maybe you didn't know that, that makes this story even better. Chapter 2, Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. You know, as we open this book, Nehemiah had to be thinking, when did we decide to settle? I want you to hear this conversation. It's an interesting conversation that leaves off at an interesting point. Nehemiah is in the citadel of Susa. His brother and some of his friends come back from a trip to their homeland. And he said, how's it going? How's everything in the homeland? And they said, it's awful. The people are in trouble and it's actually a disgrace was for lunch. They state the obvious without stating anything about a desire to do anything about the obvious. They, they just say pretty flippantly to Nehemiah, everything is broken, but it's good to be back. Nehemiah had to think, when did we decide to settle? You know, the walls and gates of Jerusalem had been broken down for 140 years. 140 years that no one had done anything about it. The people of Israel had been back living in Jerusalem for 93 years. After their spiritual exile, they actually got to go home when Persia conquered Babylon. They said, you can go home if you want. And some of the greatest spiritual leaders in the history of Israel were back home, had been back home, were aware of the condition of the city and the people, but they didn't do anything about it. Zerubbabel was sent back to rebuild the temple so that they could start offering sacrifices again. He took with him Joshua, the high priest, so that they could get the sacrifices going again. So they started doing church, but they didn't rebuild the city. Spiritual leaders who did nothing about the condition of the city. They sent back Ezra to teach people the Bible and to help people understand the Old Testament scroll. Ezra had been there for more than a decade, but had done nothing to rebuild the walls. Even Esther, who was King Artaxerxes' step 
mother. I had you underline the citadel of Susa. The entire book of Esther was written in the citadel of Susa. We're now 30 years later. Nehemiah works for the king who was Esther's stepson. Esther had a heart for her people and her country. She didn't do anything to rebuild the walls and the gates. And even Daniel, the prophet who had survived the lion's den and so much, was alive for three years after King Cyrus of Persia said, you can go home. And he didn't go to the king and say, hey, can we, can we put the walls back up? Some of the greatest leaders had been, had stayed, had lived and died, and nothing had been, had been done. Nehemiah had to think, man, how could so many people settle for so long? And I see this spiritual truth in this area of history. It's pretty easy to settle for broken when everyone else does too. And I think there's a lot of people in our world today who settle for broken because it's just the way it is. Let me ask you a question. When did you decide to settle for less than expectations? When, when, when your life failed to meet your expectations, when did you choose to just change the expectations and settle? instead of changing your life? When did you decide you'd stay married because you made a vow and you love God, but you no longer love your spouse? You were not in love. You settled for a lifetime of marriage without being in love anymore. When did you settle for a life of debt and financial pressure so severe that it robs you of all your joy every minute of every day, but you just don't have it in you to do anything about it? When did you choose long-term loneliness? And I want you to hear what I said very closely. When did you choose long-term loneliness by choosing never to trust anybody again, by choosing never to get close to anyone again, and just settling for being all by yourself because you just couldn't trust people? When did you settle into that addiction and instead of trying to fight it, it just became your greatest secret that you pray the world never really finds out about? When did you let the discouragement linger for so long that you became the most hardened pessimist in any group that you ever run with? When did you settle into a job that you knew you hated that wasn't allowing you to make the difference you wanted to make as a dad, as a husband, as a mother, as a wife, as a child, as a parent, but you just settled because that's the way it is? When did you decide that a loose spiritual connection would be enough? Come to church every now and then but not really lean in. When did you decide that no spiritual connection was needed? I'm just going to kind of check out. When did you settle for broken? Because we live in a community that's broken. We've been in this building now. This is our sixth Sunday. And we said the first five weeks of our building, we want to talk about why Jesus put this building here. Because our church didn't put this building here. Jesus put this building here. Why does Jesus ever start doing ministry anywhere? In Luke chapter 4, he answered that question. He came and he basically said this, I've come to help broken people. So anywhere there are broken people, there's going to be the ministry of Jesus. And we live in a community that needs healing from brokenness. On grand opening, I said our church is here because according to the census data about our community, here's what's true about the hundred people who live around you in Lee Summit or if you live in the Kansas City area. Of the 100 people that live around you, eight just lost their job. Seven are alcoholics. 16 have no idea how they're going to pay their bills this month. And 46 can't make their minimum payment on a credit card. 13 are one month behind on their mortgage and 29 are upside down on their mortgage. 34 have been divorced. Seven struggle with depression so severe that they've attempted suicide. Four have cancer. Three are grieving the loss of a loved one in the last 30 days. 
14 have severe anxiety, 80 don't attend church anywhere, 60 don't know Jesus. Maybe I just read your category of brokenness, or maybe you have another one all of your own. The purpose of this series is that you won't settle for that. Just because that's what our community looks like doesn't mean that's what your life has to look like. Just because those are the neighborhoods we live in doesn't mean that that has to represent the family that lives in our home. You don't have to settle for broken if you are a child of God. Whatever your brokenness is, in however long it's not been addressed, maybe not only by you, but not by your parents, not by your grandparents, maybe not by your great-great-great-grandparents. Maybe your brokenness is their fault. And every other generation just keeps ignoring it and says, it's who we are now. Your brokenness does not have to stay with you. In a world where everyone else settled for broken down walls, Nehemiah said, I'm going to rebuild. I'm going to change it. 140 years, I'm going to change. 93 years, I'm going to change. Great spiritual leaders that didn't deal with this, I'm going to deal with it. Nehemiah decided to rebuild. Why? Because I think he understood this second truth. He understood that it's okay not to be okay. But God's design is not to leave you that way. I want you to understand it's okay not to be okay. You heard our kids people up here during the greeting time tell you the mission of our church is to see people far from God become a part of what we're doing. It's okay for your life not to be okay. It's okay for your life to be broken. It's okay for you to be struggling in your marriage. It's okay for you to be struggling with your kids. It's okay for you to be struggling in your finances. It's okay for you to be struggling in your emotional health. It's okay to be struggling with spiritual things. It's okay to not be okay. We want you to know we're really glad you're here if you're a broken person who's not okay. It's okay not to be okay here. But it's not okay to stay that way if you've connected to Jesus. Because his design is not to leave you that way. I want you to look at chapter 2 and see what Nehemiah did that no one else had done for almost 150 years. He says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. He doesn't say that he took a drink first, which he would have. Maybe he's a Baptist and he doesn't want us to know. Um, I'd not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins? And his gates have been destroyed by fire. The king said to me, what is it that you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Here's a really interesting thing about what Nehemiah has just asked. I don't believe from all of my study that Nehemiah had ever been to Jerusalem. I don't think he'd ever been to Israel in his lifetime. I think he was born and raised is kind of a slave, indentured servant type of person in Babylon and Persia. He'd never been to Jerusalem. He'd never even really seen it with his own eyes. But he knew that God's design purpose for Jerusalem as a city of God was more than what he was hearing about it. And here's why I say that. Some of you have never been who God wants you to be. You've never been to where God wants to get you to spiritually. You've never looked in the mirror and seen who who you can be spiritually. But you, like Nehemiah, are greatly aware that the condition you're in now is not the condition God has designed for you to be in long term. You've not seen it yet, but you know it's broken enough that it's 
that it's not right. And you know, the setting of this room in Nehemiah chapter 2 was a setting where people decided once and for all that change was needed. You know, it was this very room that 28 years later, Artaxerxes' stepmother Esther had stood in and said, things are going one way for me and my people, but that has to change today forever. 28 years later, the king's cupbearer would come in and he would say, things look like this right now for me and my people, but it's time to change now and forever. This was the room where people said, enough is enough. It's time for change. And could it be possible that this is the room Or that this is the setting, watching on your phone or watching through a computer. Could it be that this is the setting in the time in your life where you finally say enough is enough, a change is needed? Could God use this room and this series once and for all for you to say it's time for a change? The king asked Nehemiah a question, what's wrong? Nehemiah made a very simple statement, the walls and the gates are in ruin, but they're not going to stay that way if I have anything to do with it. You know, I feel like God is pulling out of every one of us a question today, what's wrong? And the answer is, well, this is what's going on in my life. However, it's not going to stay that way if I have anything to do with it because it's time to rebuild. Nehemiah started with a decision, and his decision was followed by key action steps that we're going to study the next four weeks. After you make a decision to rebuild, how do you do it? I'm going to talk to you about that the next month. But here's what you have to trust. You have to believe that God has something better designed for you than brokenness if you're going to step out of your brokenness. Because some of us are very comfortable and content in our brokenness, and it's because we don't know anything else. And we're afraid that to have our brokenness, even our brokenness taken from us, would leave us with absolutely nothing. A month from today, a team from our church will get on a plane, and we'll head to Kenya to do missions for 10 days to a location similar to where we went to two years ago. I led a team over there. And it was unbelievable. You say, what do you do in Kenya? We, we do a lot, but one of the things we do most is we play soccer. We play soccer with the kids over there. We go into these villages that are way out in the middle of nowhere. We go to orphanages, um, and we just hang out with kids, and we play soccer. They don't speak English. We don't speak their language, but everyone speaks soccer. So we roll into these villages. We throw out soccer balls, and we play soccer, and we blow up balloons, and we blow bubbles. We just hang out with the kids for a couple hours, and then after we've ha- hung out and had a good time, we come together, and we, we share a Bible story through inter- an interpreter. It's awesome. Now, I did not grow up in a community that played soccer. We didn't even have soccer at my little local high school in southern Ohio. So when I go, I watched everyone play soccer, and I thought, I don't really know how to do this. So I just gave everyone a piggyback ride. Like, my game was as many people as possible, just pile on, and I'll just walk around with you. And that's what we'll do for two hours. And it was really, really cool until a kid peed on me. And then after a kid peed on me, it was like, this was in the middle of the Ebola scare, and they were like, don't even take sandals because you don't want to step in urine. You don't want to come into contact with urine. And as, this, as my leg's getting warm, I'm thinking, this is bad. Like, this is really, really bad. Who wants to play soccer, right? So it's like, but mission trips are awesome. Mission trips where you just hang out. A lot of times our elders go over there. One of our elders photobombed me and another guy. This is Harry and I, one of our finance team members, standing in northern Kenya looking into Uganda. And there's Todd flying. I mean, it's just, I love mission trips. It's awesome. But mostly we play soccer um, and we hang out. And in every village, we would carry a brand new bag of soccer balls in. Our first step out of our vans would be to roll out the soccer balls, and we'd have a good time. They were normally playing soccer before we got there. But most of the villages, they were playing soccer with like a ball of trash that had maybe been taped together. Um, They were playing soccer, I saw, sometimes with a pile of leaves that had been kind of bound together with something. It, It was their thing. 
but they didn't really have any soccer balls. In the last village we went to, we had to park down the street a little bit because we couldn't pull in. And we went and we, we saw the church, we saw the orphanage, we saw the school, and then we ran out back to go hang out with the kids. They were doing their recess kind of rec time. And when we got outside, all the kids were playing soccer. And I realized instantly we, f- we forgot the soccer balls. So as we walk out to see these kids, the ball that they're playing with, they kick over and it rolls up to my feet. Now we've not had any contact with them yet, but their ball rolled over to me and I picked it up and I had this brilliant idea because as Americans, we like to like save the day, right? So it's like, hey, I've got a great idea. So I had the ball and I called the interpreter over and the kids were looking at me like, give the ball back. This was a village where they had never seen a white person before. After I gave them all of our gifts, a little kid sat on my lap and literally just rubbed my arm for like an hour. I don't know if he was trying to rub the white off. I don't know if he was trying, I don't know what was going on, but he just like, just rubbed my arm, like kind of like I pet my dog. Maybe he thought I was a pet. I don't know. It's like, we just hung out, but they'd never seen a white person. And the first white person they see takes their ball. Um, but he has this great idea because, you know, I'm a, like a lone ranger, save the day, white person in this Kenyan village. So I asked the interpreter, I said, Hey, ask him if I can take this ball for a minute and tell them I'll be right back. I was going to take the ball. It's going to take it to our vans. It's going to come back with a new ball. It's like, wow, you know, spiritual magic. Jesus loves you. I mean, I don't know what I was thinking. There's something along those lines. So I said, ask him if I can take the ball. And as we're having the conversation with kind of the alpha male of the playground, 12, 13-year-old kid, um, and they were talking, I could, I could tell that the person with me, the interpreter was an authority figure, um, so he wasn't going to say no, but I could tell this kid was really bothered because his eyes immediately teared up while I'm holding this ball. And then like his line of friends come and eventually they're all kind of line up and I'm telling him, just tell him, I promise I'll be, I'll bring it back. I'll be right back. I just need to borrow it. I've got something for them. And as I'm, as I take this, they're kind of standing in line. They're all starting to tear up. It, it was so sad. And at that moment, for like the first time in my life, I realized what God must see in us when he asks us to give him our brokenness and trust what he'll give us in return. Because what I was going to do for these kids was going to be so much better, but they didn't know that. And, and I saw the tension of faith as I walked away and they stayed put wondering, is this guy really going to deliver? I, I went and I got the other soccer balls. I brought them back. We went and played soccer for a couple of hours. It was awesome. And at the end of the day, I grabbed that soccer ball because... It had impacted me so deeply and we called the alpha male over again and I said, ask him if I can have this now. He can keep all of these, but I want this one. See if he'll give this to me because it's been such a good spiritual lesson for me. And after he had received what we had brought, he's like, yeah, you can keep it. I've I've got it here today and I want to show it to you. Maybe it's better for you to see what giving God brokenness looks like than to actually experience it. Here's the soccer ball. They were playing with. This is the best soccer ball of any of the seven villages that we went to that they were playing with. Just in this exact condition, this is what they were playing soccer with. This is what rolled up to my feet. Just an inner tube, massive hole in it, been torn down the center. There's a big kind of line of yarn where they try to piece it back together. And I looked as I took their soccer ball away, knowing that I had a bag full of six of these guys. And I thought, why does this kid trust me? Like, does he really think I just want to steal? His ball, like, why won't, why won't he give me this broken ball so I can give him a new one? And I think Jesus sometimes wonders the same thing when he asks for our brokenness. And we know very clearly that we've got a massive hole in our life. 
And we've been trying everything we know to try to sew back our life piece by piece together and hold it together. And Jesus says, listen, give me your brokenness and let me give you something brand new. And we hesitate because we think it's all we know. And we decide to live life with a big hole in our life, kind of tied together instead of allowing God to give us his brand new. You know, Nehemiah looked at broken and he looked at new and he said, I'm, I'm going to choose new and we're going we're gonna to do something about it. Some of you, the only reason you've held back in really pressing into Jesus is because you've heard that all Jesus wants is to take from your life. You've not heard that he wants to give back not only better, but more than what he's ever taken. And if you're here today and you're saying, you know what, it's been long enough. I've settled long enough. It's time to rebuild. What am I going to do? Three simple action steps. Number one, mourn the reality of broken. Mourn the reality of broken. Look at your life and admit to God, I've got a massive hole in my marriage. I've got a massive hole in my relationship with my parents, my relationship with my kids. I've got a massive gap financially that's pulling my life apart. I am so emotionally unhealthy. I need to see a counselor. Just mourn the reality of brokenness. How would an outsider picture your life? Most of us try to hide our brokenness, but the reality is everyone sees it. They see right through it. I had a counselor one day say, how would, a counselor, how would an outsider look at your life and describe it? Because that probably is how everyone actually sees you. Nehemiah said, God, for those on the furthest horizon of broken, I'm going to ask that you're going to bring them back. So mourn the reality of broken. Number two, begin to pray for restoration. Begin to pray for restoration immediately and consistently. Say, God, I want you to help rebuild this broken part. You know, Nehemiah prayed for 90 days. In Nehemiah 1.1, he said it was the 20th year and it was the month of Kislev. In chapter 2, he said it's now the month of Nisan. 90 days had gone by in the Persian calendar. What had Nehemiah been doing for 90 days? Praying. He'd been praying for restoration consistently for 90 days. And he'd been reminding God of his promises. God, you said... God, you said, God, you said, God, your design is this. God, I know you want this. He'd just been throwing God's word about him and his people back in his face and saying, all right, God, now I need you to do something about this. I want to challenge you if you're broken to pray this little restoration prayer that I put on the back of your sermon notes. It'll take you 10 seconds every morning, but I want to challenge you to pray it every day for 90 days. Speak God's promises back to him and then listen. God, remember that you said... If I draw near to you, that you'll draw near to me. I will draw near to you every day with new commitments and new consistency. And I ask that you give me life to the fullest as my life connects with you on a new level. I challenge you to pray that every 90 days. But pray it with a pen in your hand and a notepad beside you. Or pray it with a pen in your hand and your notes section opened on your phone. Because when you start talking to God, he's going to start talking back to you. Say, so that's, that's, that's weird. Um, but what's that going to be like? I don't know. It'll be different. It might be a thought that you begin having that you just need to write down and start journaling. It might be a song you hear on the radio. It might be a conversation that you have at work. It might be something you read in the Bible or hear at church. But when you begin talking to God, God will begin talking to you and it will be a dialogue back and forth. Pray for restoration. And then number three, take one step towards rebuilding. No one can rebuild a broken life in a moment in a prayer, but we can take one step towards that. I want to challenge you this week. Tell someone what's broken. If you're only going to take one step this week, tell someone what's broken. They probably already know. Some might be shocked, 
but tell someone what's broken. It's the first step of rebuilding. And if you don't have anyone to tell, tell us. Connection card in a seat pocket in front of you. You can take it out, put your name on it, and you can write in a, a prayer request that'll get to our pastoral staff by the end of today before we go to bed. To, before we go to bed, just saying, pray for me, I'm broken in this area. We'd love to pray for you. You know, I love the book of Nehemiah. You know the name Nehemiah means Jehovah, Jehovah comforts. You see, I love Nehemiah because Nehemiah is a reminder, even in his name, that broken things God has a plan for. And things that need comforting, God wants to step in for. So how about you? What broken thing in your life have you been settling for that God has a better plan for? It's okay not to be okay. But God certainly doesn't intend to leave you that way once he meets you. If you're broken today, your prayer should sound very simple. It should sound something like this. God, my life is broken and I need help. And if you're broken today, there's probably two categories of broken people in this room today. The first would be people who are broken and they're not Christians. You've never really, in in a real way, you've never connected to Jesus. You're not a church person. You're not a spiritual person. You would not even describe yourself as a Christian but you realize there's a massive hole in your life. The Bible says that the hole in your life is only meant to be filled by Jesus. He's the only one who can fill it completely. If you're broken today and you're not a Christian, your first step is to trust your life to Jesus and to commit to follow him and let him become the leader and then figure it out as you go. And if you are a Christian and you're broken, your step today is to admit that brokenness and to ask Jesus to begin to heal your life. God wants to help you rebuild the dream for your life and the spiritual health of your life, but we've got to ask for his help. So would you bow your heads with me today?